could Deepwater Horizon have been prevented? We ponder that $64,000 question during a look back at lessons learned from the Montera oil field incident in 2009. Battling hindsight bias and confirmation bias provides some of the keys to success. Process Safety with Trish and Tracy is a production of Chemical Processing. Chemical Processing focuses on serving engineers, designing, and operating plants in the chemical industry. Welcome to this edition of Process Safety with Trish and Tracy, the podcast that aims to share insights from past incidents to help avoid future events. I'm Tracy Purdom, Executive Digital Editor with Chemical Processing, and as always, I'm joined by Trish Kieran, the Director of the iChemie Safety Center. Hello, Trish. What's going on with you? Hey, Tracy. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Trying to stay uh, dry. We're having a, a bout of lots of storms in the Cleveland, Ohio area, uh, but we're doing all right. Uh, good. We're starting to get a little bit more daylight each day as we start to come out of winter, so it's it's a beautiful morning at the moment. The sun's right, risen, blue sky, but it's a bit cold outside. Well, we have exactly the opposite, so <laughs> we'll always be that mm. way, Trish. We'll be the exact opposites in weather. We will. <laughs> Well, as we often do, we're looking back at a past incident to see what we can learn today. Um, In this case, it's the anniversary of the oil and gas leak in the Montera oil field, which took place off the northern coast of Western Australia between August 21st and November 3rd, 2009. While there is a lot to learn from just this incident on its own, what stands out is that it happened just months prior to the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Can you catch us up to speed on some of the Montera incident, what happened there? Sure, I'll try. Um, Basically, what we saw at Montara was a well blowout had occurred, and that then caused the leaking of uh, oil and gas before it was eventually capped, I think, for about 75 days. There was five attempts to cap the well, in fact. They weren't able to cap it on the first four. It took the fifth attempt. Um, They drilled a relief well and and capped it um, that way. All 69 workers in this incident were actually evacuated to safety, which was a a fantastic result from the, the human perspective. But obviously, there was a significant environmental impact that occurred for oil and gas leaking for that length of time. And it was interesting that um, what we saw in this incident was the cement shoe, cement casing shoe failed. Uh, the well kicked and it bypassed, uh, it, it pushed past the, the failed cement shoe and resulted in the uh, oil and gas reaching the surface and then flowing uh, unabated for some period of time. It was interesting when they actually built uh, and were, were working on the well and installing it, they didn't necessarily follow the appropriate standards, um, both industry, international and uh, even company standards in building it. And so they hadn't properly pressure tested the cement casing shoe when it had been installed. And there had been a lot of trouble with that cement job as well. It hadn't gone smoothly. There'd been issues with it along the way, but they didn't properly pressure test it. So they didn't know whether it was holding. And then they were meant to actually install two pressure-containing anti-corrosion cap heads, uh, caps to, to basically protect it in situ at the time um, whilst they went away and did some other things. But they only installed one. And they didn't test that when they installed that either. So that didn't work effectively. Now, it's also important to note that the manufacturers of 
pressure-containing anti-corrosion caps very clearly specify they're not actually intended to be a barrier either. They're intended to basically stop corrosion. They're not a barrier to a well. But they had kind of been relied on as being a barrier in this process and there was meant to be two of them as a barrier, except there wasn't two of them, there was only one and it wasn't tested properly. We can start to see we're seeing a lot of failures that occurred in the lead-up to this. When they later removed that, um, that pressure-containing anti-corrosion cap, they then, uh, for, to, to start to do other work on the well, that was when it suffered the initial blowout and the incident basically then took place from there. So there was a whole series of issues around what happened with that. You know, there wasn't effectively a, a blowout preventer on that well. You know, hence we saw a substantial oil leak occur at that time. I believe it might have been the worst in the history of uh, Australian operations. Now, how did this parallel what happened with Deepwater Horizon? It was pretty close, wasn't it? It was, and that was, I think, one of the, the really concerning things about it. So this happened months before Deepwater Horizon happened, eight, eight or so months, I think. Now, in Deepwater Horizon, you remember that there was an issue with the, the cement shoe casing. It was not a good cement pour, even though they thought it was a good cement pour. So when they were testing it and they were getting results that suggested there was something wrong with it, those results were put down to something else occurring because they believed that it was a good, a good cement pour. And that's a, a phenomenon of, um, called confirmation bias, when we only really see the information that confirms our theory. And the theory was it was a good cement job, so it was good. And it, it turns out that the Deepwater Horizon one wasn't a good cement job, and that then did subsequently um, fail. They also had issues with their next barriers they were relying on. So their blowout preventer then failed to actually seal adequately and that had been installed incorrectly and not tested properly either. You know, there's a lot of similarities. They're not identical incidents by any stretch, but there's a lot of similarities. You know, we're talking about how the cement shoe casings were done, how the cement pour was done, the quality of it and the testing of it as a, an effective barrier, the use of additional barriers uh, to prevent, uh, to create some sort of redundancy in the event that a barrier failed, the testing of those barriers, the installing of that equipment to appropriate industry standards. And, and so they're the real parallels that we see in it. So it was sort of frightening to have seen Montara happen to then less than a year later be watching Deepwater Horizon happen. When Montara happened, didn't others in the industry re-examine their processes um, and, and kind of wonder about that? You, you mentioned the confirmation bias um, and thinking that, that their cement casings were fine, but wouldn't they rethink that after Montara? Well, yes and no. You, when you're in industry, you get a whole lot of lessons learned bulletins fly past your desk on a regular basis of things, you know, high uh, potential incident alert, all sorts of these things. There's a lot of information that does get shared at a very high level. One of the challenges about that information is that often it's shared at such a high level that it can stop having meaning. So if we can't give enough detail in a lessons learned and if something's under investigation or the, the company wants to keep it legally privileged, then we start to see the rich, valuable information stripped out of it because we can't share that much because there'll be legal implications to it. And that, I think, is one of the big challenges with lessons learned. We try to share them, but we don't end up sharing meaningful information. We share headlines 
that actually don't necessarily help people understand and take action themselves. I think that's one, one issue with it. The other issue um, is that there is a tendency, and this is another form of bias, well, hindsight bias, there is a tendency to look at that information and say, well, of course that was going to happen. They, what they did was, was stupid. They should not have done that. And that's hindsight bias. That's us saying subconsciously to ourselves, yeah, we wouldn't make that mistake. We're not that stupid. We wouldn't do it that way. So we spend more time rationalizing subconsciously in our brain why we wouldn't make that same mistake that was made in the incident rather than thinking, what can I do to stop it happening? How do I prevent that happening to me? That's a real challenge as well because we don't like to think that we're fallible to make that sort of mistake. So we don't want to think that, you know, that incident could happen to me, I better do something about it. We'd rather think, because it's really obvious what went wrong. Once we know what went wrong, what the consequences were, it's really obvious every mistake they made along the way. It's blindingly obvious with hindsight. That prevents us from learning effectively as well. And that's another big challenge that we have to overcome. So we need people to sort of consciously you know, switch off their subconscious brain that's rationalizing why they wouldn't make that mistake and start to think, how can, how can that happen here? How could that incident happen at my facility? And now what do I do about it? It could happen, how? Rather than it can't happen because. And so it's, it, it's changing the way we look at information and the way we take that in. And I think that's an important broad learning for any lessons learned document that comes out because Whilst we don't actually see identical incidents occur, there's a lot of similarities. Nothing is ever absolutely identical, but there's a lot of similarities that occur between different incidents. And the fact is, we, have not, we are not having new process safety incidents. We're having the old ones again and again and again. Yeah, because substances we deal with are flammable, or they're toxic, or they're corrosive. These sorts of examples. That physics and chemistry don't change in that process. What changes is our complacency to those to the laws of physics and chemistry. Now, I, I heard someone describe the other day. You know, the the virus doesn't respond to politics or policy. The virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. You have to manage it. Mm. Um, those sorts of of things. You know, it's not responding to the political position of the day, like gravity. Gravity doesn't respond to that. Gravity just is. We have to accept it. How can it affect us? Thinking about when you're saying how can that happen here, if the folks at Deepwater um, got the memo on Montara and asked themselves how can that happen here, do you think Deepwater could have been avoided? Well, I guess that's a $64,000 question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, look, I... If, if, it, if we were better at asking ourselves that question, then possibly. Because the, the, the question then would have been asked, so, you know, how do we know that the cement job is good? How do we absolutely know that it's holding? How do we delve into that information to make sure our pressure test shows that it worked? We would also look at, you know, how have we positively tested that our blowout preventer works? So we may not have stopped the well kick and blowout, but we may have then mitigated it a lot earlier than, than had been done rather than the length of time it took to eventually cap the Montara well so, or the Macondo well. Um, so I think that's the, the challenge there is we may not always have been able to prevent some of the incidents because there may be other factors that, that are slightly different that come into play. But it's how do we 
at least mitigate or minimise what's going on for us. Yeah, it, it, possibly yes, I, I think is the answer, but it's, it's never clear cut. We're dealing with, with technology and we're dealing with the human brain and sometimes both get misled. I want to uh, dial back a little bit. You mentioned that when these lessons learned get thrown across the desk, when, when these disasters happen and the bulletins go out, um, they're at a high level and, and the only things that are being shared are the headlines. Um, obviously, learning from lessons needs to happen a little bit better how can we stay uh, how can we stay on top of these types of disasters is is there a better way to communicate i mean the breakdown you you said it you know gravity and physics and chemistry don't change we have to change so so what can be done there that is a fascinating question uh, and it's one i've pondered for years and uh, i wish i had the answer i think there are bits to it. Uh, I don't think there's any one magic answer to solve that problem because you know humans are an incredibly complex being so it's not a simple thing but I think you know part of it is actually trying to train ourselves to be aware of why decisions were made not necessarily what the decision was because the people that are involved in incidents didn't make bad decisions because they knew that decision was going to lead to an incident. Let's face it, they, just, they didn't make those decisions that way. They made what they thought were good decisions at the time with the information they had. Why did they make that decision? What led them to make the assumptions they made? What was the context around what they were doing? And so I think one of the ways to get better learning is to really focus in on that contextual reasoning around why people did what they did. So when you're doing an incident investigation, get to the context around all the decisions that occurred. Because a decision's not made in isolation of everything. It's made because someone felt pressure to do something in a certain way. You know, if someone takes a shortcut, they took a shortcut for a reason. They didn't just do it for the fun of it. There's a reason why they took a shortcut. Can we fix the underlying reason that led that to be a good decision at the time that subsequently wasn't a good decision in hindsight? So if we can start to fix some of these things, tradespeople using the wrong tools, because to get the right tool, they'd have to go right over the other side of the plant to the store to pick it up. So they're going to use the wrong tool, which is going to lead to something going wrong. Uh, and you sort of go, yeah, they're, they're professional tradesmen. Why are they using the wrong tool? They should know the right tool. Yes, but if it's going to make the job an hour and a half longer because they've got to go all the way over to the other side of the plant and they've got to check out that tool and they've got to do this, they've got to do that, they've got to go all the way back again to do the job and they've got 15 other jobs to do that day and there's pressure on them to get all the jobs done, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to improvise and they're going to do the best to try and get the work done. So do you need to have tools available to them in a different way to eliminate that issue, the barrier for them? So we need to understand why people make the decisions they make and then start to address those underlying reasons. You know, if we're, if we're talking about how, you know, it's really important safety first, safety first, safety first, but then every metric every employee ever sees is all about production and profit and every conversation they have is about 
you know, so we've got to get this happening. It has to happen really fast. We need this to happen fast. Then what do you think is going to override the lovely posters that say safety first? It's going to be the pressure of production and cost. We need to understand what is driving people's decisions, the context in which they're working. One of the things we did in the Safety Centre a few years ago is we started to create a new form of case study to tell the stories of incidents without telling you what the incident is. And the reason we do that is to try and remove that hindsight bias. And throughout the little uh, incident videos we show you in the lead up, we just we focus on giving you the context of what's going on and we put you deeply into that context. Then we ask you to make a decision about what's going to happen next. And most people make the decision that lead to the incident. When you're in the same context, we're likely going to produce a very similar result. We need to change the context of what's happening in our workplaces so that people can make better decisions at that time. In past episodes, we've talked about looking outside the chemical industry for lessons learned as well and talking about the hindsight bias. Maybe that's something that would help, like taking them out of they get nose blind or they, they get they get blinders on. I don't want to say nose blind. That's a silly commercial reference. But uh, they get blinders on in their own industry. But if they look at another industry that has, you know, similar processes, maybe they can, they can grasp lessons learned and, and think more critically that way. It's an interesting, it's an interesting idea. And it's one that I've played with previously. Uh, the interesting thing I've found is when you talk to someone about incidents within their own industry sector, they, get, they can get quite defensive because, well, you know, well, that's just such and such a company. We're not like that. and We don't do it that way. So they, they start to get a little bit defensive. You know, we wouldn't make that same mistake. We're not like them. So you think, okay, well, what if I choose a slightly different industry sector, similar-ish processes but different industry sector? Then you start to get the, no, but that wouldn't happen because that's different. And so it's, again, it's not as clear cut as, you know, we can't compare the same and we can't compare the different because, well, that's just different. That wouldn't happen here because we have different standards in our industry to that industry or, or, or things like that. One thing I have found quite useful is to, to say, okay, we need to go like really, really left field in these ideas. And so some of the case studies are industry sectors that, the people we interact with have never worked in and probably never will work in. And the reason we did that is because we wanted to draw out the rich learnings from them and then we draw a parallel back to their industry. And I found that works quite well. Um, so you, whilst it sounds reasonable on the surface to say, well, let's look at a similar industry, sometimes you just have to look at something that's so totally different. So whether it is um, you know, the, the Herald of Free Enterprise ferry that, that sunk off the Brug and, and uh, capsized, killing a lot of people. It, it's a really, there's some interesting process safety parallels in there that you can draw out. Whether it is uh, the, either the Challenger or the Columbia Space Shuttle, really interesting parallels that can be drawn out and compared back. And, and people can engage with them because they're, they're fascinating and interesting stories. They're not defensive because it's not their industry. They're not defensive because it's not close to their industry but not quite the same standards as we have, um, which is sort of one of the pushbacks I get. It's totally different. They get engaged. You know, uh, some people that are listening to this podcast have probably heard a presentation of mine about a, a, a tragic whitewater rafting theme park ride uh, and how that had parallels into process safety again 
people become engaged with those sorts of stories. I saw that recently there was a, another tragedy um, that occurred in a US theme park. Some very similar sort of rider, a child was tragically killed. So, you know, these incidents still keep happening as well in other sectors too. Is there anything you would like to add to this topic that we did not touch on yet? I think it's really important to make sure that when you're doing complex activities that you take the time to look outside your own little bubble of your business, your facility, and understand, clearly understand what your company standards were. In the issue of Montara, they hadn't even actually covered and followed some of their company standards. What are the international standards? What, are this, what is the industry doing in that space? How do you know you're right up there with what needs to be done from an industry perspective? And make sure you understand and engage with the, the regulator and, and what they're after from you as well. You know, the regulatory process does not need to be burdensome. You can actually get some value out of it at times because the regulators have the benefit of seeing a range of different ways things are done. They see a lot of facilities. You may need to actually teach them a little bit about yours. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, the regulator, they don't know what they're talking about. Well, actually, they, they're very knowledgeable in their area. They don't know your particular plant because, no, they haven't been trained on your particular plant. But they have other valuable knowledge that they may be able to, to point you in the right direction of things. So it's really around making sure you understand the requirements of what you're doing. Is what you're doing actually meeting, I guess, ragged gap, the, the standards you should be meeting? Um, we should not be doing anything below that. So you've got to make sure that, that you're covering off that. If you're in other jurisdictions, then is what you're doing a LARP? Are you, are you reducing your risks as low as is reasonably practicable? They're the sort of focuses that you need to be, be looking at, making sure that you're making the right decisions with the right information and following the requirements that you need to be addressing. That is great advice. And uh, something before we go today I wanted to touch on, you, you had mentioned about the safety center um, and trying to remove the hindsight bias. Is there, can, can our listeners get into that and, and check that database out or is that something that um, is proprietary? Or? Uh, so what we did is we actually created these little interactive videos. So the, it's, a, it's a workshop type activity that you would go through with people and you watch the video, you see what you talk about what's going on, you make decisions and you continue through on the story. So you can certainly see more information about those on our website, www.icheme.org. And at the top you just go to Safety Centre and then there'll be a, a, one of the, the tablets on the page is uh, case studies. There's some examples in there. Um, so we do, those case studies are a, a product that are, that are sold um, though they are all free to our Safety Centre member companies. So the member companies have access to them um, and I work with the member companies quite a lot to facilitate those case studies with them as well. But they can just be purchased as well for use in your own facility. Uh, they seem very useful, so I will, in the transcript of this as well, uh, put a link to that so that folks can get to that if they would care to. Um, Trish, as always, you are a champion of safety, but you also prove that you're a champion of people and humanity and understanding that um, people don't wake up with the intent to, to cause 
a safety incident. Um, safety incidents happen, and that's why we're here to to help sort through those. As we know, unfortunate events happen all over the world, and we will be here to discuss and learn from them. And if you want to subscribe to this free podcast, please do so, so you can stay on top of best practices. On behalf of Trish, I'm Tracy, and this is Process Safety with Trish and Tracy. Stay safe.